0: The topic for tonight is the life and possible death of Herschel Greenspan. Show of hands, who's ever heard of him? All right, some, but not all. Okay. Herschel Greenspan was born in Hanover, Germany, on March twenty-first, nineteen March twenty-eighth, nineteen twenty-one. The son of Rivka and Zundel Greenspan, who were Polish Jews who had moved to Germany in 1911. As Polish Jews, Polish citizens, they resided in Weimar-era Germany, as did many other Ostudens, hoping for a better life for themselves, for economic advancement, and to escape the misery that had been Poland. They came originally from Radomsk. But, Unlike other Polish Jews living in 1920s and early 1930s Germany, they were not very successful financially. They lived a fairly meager existence, in fact had to subsist on welfare payments at various points in time. After the Nazi takeover in January of 1933, the question is what, the, what is the future for the Jews of Germany, and especially for the Jews of Germany who are not German citizens? and who have possibly less protections than those who do have German, or did have German citizenship up until the Nazi takeover. Herschel goes to school. He's a young boy. His mind is not occupied by these great worldly, uh, worldly concerns. But in 1935, at the age of 14, he drops out of school, having not completed uh, middle school. He was not much of a student, he was no dummy, but he wasn't the studious type and didn't enjoy taking courses. His family realizes that um, they're in a very tough spot. It's not easy to get an entry visa into another country to escape Germany. They'd like to leave. They could go in a heartbeat back to Poland, but they don't want to go back to Poland. Poland is terrible. So they're in Germany with nowhere else to go. What's the best choice if it were available? Well, the other best choice, Israel. Eretz Israel, Palestine. But getting a, a certificate of Aliyah to Palestine in the mid-1930s is itself no simple task. And you have to be a participant in some sort of a Zionist enterprise, one of the, one of the Zionist factions, if you hope to get one of those coveted certificates. And so, being a, a somewhat religious family, they enroll Herschel in the Mizrahi. In the hopes that he can be prepared for aliyah, whatever that means, whether it's learning Hebrew or learning some sort of agricultural traits, talents, he's going to be uh, going to Hakshara for aliyah purposes. But that doesn't seem to be working out either. He goes to Frankfurt for a year to study in yeshiva because he can no longer go to a German school. Figure if he's going to be a religious Zionist, let him learn a little bit in yeshiva. But his yeshiva studies are not very productive and he drops out of yeshiva too, in the spring of 1936. So what do you do? The family has sort of given up hope on saving themselves, but they'd like to save their young boy. There are two older siblings, a sister Esther and a brother Mordechai, but they want to save little Herschel. Where can he go? So as it turned out, the Greenspan family had uh, relatives in Brussels and in Paris. Uh, Zundel's brother, Wolf lived in Brussels, and Zundel's brothers Avraham and Shlomo lived in Paris. But bear in mind, Avraham and Shlomo were not on speaking terms. But they both lived in Paris. So, a a plan is hatched, (coughs) whereby Herschel will go to Brussels and then make his way to France. The problem is, although he has an exit visa from Germany to go to, to Belgium, he has no entry visa into France. He has to sneak across the border somehow. And so in July of 1936, he goes to uh, Belgium. And in September of 1936, he steals across the border into France. How does he do this? Well, there was a border town where there was an industrial factory on the Belgian side of the border. And most of its employees lived on the French side of the border. And as is typically the case when you have uh, a large number of workers crossing our international frontier every day, the same people day after day, the border guards are not especially careful with who crosses. They just figure it's the employees going back and forth home from work, rush hour. And Herschel was made, a- made aware of this by uh, his handlers, and he snuck across the border dressed as a factory worker. Uncle Lavraham was waiting for him on the French side of the border, and took him to Paris, to an uh, immigrant Jewish section of Paris, where he stayed at the Maison Albert, which was the name of their little mom and pop uh, fabric joint where they made clothing. What does he do in Paris? He's a 15 year old boy, there illegally, trying to stay away from the eyes of the authorities, with no, no particular talents, nor for that matter any interest in learning very much. So he's a, he's a boy of the streets. He hangs out with his friends. He develops f- a few relationships, a few friendships with uh, similar people in similar circumstances. Eastern European Jews who have made their way to Paris as uh, refugees or migrants, most of whom had better legal standing than he did, and they would waste away their time at the cafes. That's what he would do. Would the French police deport, deport this? Uh, if they found him, they would, which we'll see uh, soon enough they become aware of his existence in 1938 and issue an order of deportation. Okay, so Herschel is living with his uncle and aunt, uh, Avram and Chava Greenspan, who don't have any children of their own, and they're doing the chesed, the kindness of taking in a nephew in dire straits, but it's costing them money. There was a rumor that could not be substantiated, whether back then or even now, that the family in Germany, in Hanover, sent 3,000 francs, which was a nice amount of money back then, um, from Germany to Paris for Uncle Avram to use for the upkeep of Herschel. The problem with that theory is, how many Reichsmarks were you allowed to take out of Germany after 1933 if you were a Jew? Ten. Ten. Which is a pittance. Nothing. That's a lot less than 3,000 French francs. So, (coughs) how this money, if it ever existed, could have been made available to Uncle Avram remains one of the enduring mysteries of the Herschel Greenspan case. Keep that in mind as we go forward. But, Uncle Avram means well. He tries his best to keep Herschel out of trouble and well-fed and hopefully alive. But, there's a problem. Herschel's Polish passport, and for that matter, his German re-entry visa, are set to expire in the middle of 1937. He needs desperately to have some sort of valid papers in the event that the French find out about his existence and want to deport him. Otherwise, he becomes stateless and stuck, and who knows what fate might befall him. He devises a strategy of going to the German uh, consulate and, uh, not the, the Polish consulate and claiming that he lost his passport and got a six-month extension with a temporary document. Very smart, very smart. But still, time is running out. And he's going to eventually, if he runs out of uh, valid papers or if he's going to try to uh, become a lawful resident of France, have to expose himself to the French authorities. In early 1938, the French realize that he's in the country. And in August of 1938, on August 11th, he loses uh, a court case in which he was petitioning for residency permit. Eleven days later, on August 22nd, 1938, the court issues an official expulsion edict at which point in time he has to disappear. He can no longer live with Uncle Avram and Aunt Chava. He goes to a different apartment in the same building, and everyone denies knowing where he is. So, he's really uh, a nobody, (coughs) trying to stay off uh, off the grid completely. All this is just a precursor to the exciting part of the story. The Germans have a problem on their hand. Jews... They don't like Jews. And it's not easy for the Nazi state to eliminate its Jewish population in the 1930s before any thought of uh, mass extermination because the only method was emigration, and emigration is being stalled by the fact that other countries won't take in Jews. Well, that's when they're your own citizens, German citizens who happen to be Jewish, who are no longer desirable in the eyes of the state. But what happens if people living in Germany who are Jewish are citizens of another state? Well, they can be forcibly deported at any time. This wasn't done right away. This wasn't even done uh, after the Nuremberg Laws were passed. But it's on the minds of the Nazi officials. And precisely because it's on their minds, it's also a a political factor for for the Polish government. So the Polish government issues an edict early in 1938 saying that if you're a Polish citizen who has not been back to Poland in the past five years uh, and has not made any attempt to re-enter Poland, your passport will be revoked. Not just your passport, but your Polish citizenship will be revoked. Can that be done? Is that is that is that lawful under international law? Who cares? There's no such thing as international law. You do whatever you want, sovereign state. So for the uh, yeah, uh, the, the family came to Germany early on right. in 1911. From 1911, they did apply for citizenship. It's not a simple thing to get citizenship in Germany if you're not a, a real German, and uh, this 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 was true uh, in 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 the period of uh, the Second Reich, the Weimar Republic, and the Third Reich. It it was always true in Germany. It's a very difficult thing. Germans don't like giving citizenship to non-ethnic Germans. So Eastern European Jews who came under the Kaiser sometimes were able to uh, uh, gain citizenship, but typically not. Okay, so the Poles issue this edict, and it's going to affect approximately 60,000 Jews in Germany. That's a lot of Jews. Now, the Germans have to act fast. If they don't want to be stuck with these people indefinitely, they have to try to coerce them over the German-Polish border. Well, that's exactly what they'll do. On the night of October 27, 1938, there is a mass roundup of approximately, and it's hard to know exactly, but some estimates have a low number of 12,000, some estimates have 18,000, some estimates have 20,000 Jews, were rounded up from spots all over over Germany, and put on railroad cars, and sent east to the Polish border. By the way, included in this uh, 20,000 Jews is the person we'll speak about next Tuesday night, Abraham Joshua Heschel. He was one of those who were carted off to the Polish border. Well, also included are Rivka and Zundel Greenspan and their children, Mordechai and Esther. Well, what happens to them? So, they're in a very dire circumstance. The Germans pretended they lied in the propaganda reels and said that the Jews who were being deported were being treated very humanely, and they gave a whole laundry list of food supplies that were put, made available to the people on first-class railroad tickets. First-class railroad tickets with, with, with bread and, and water and with, with lard and ham and wine and cheese and all sorts of food made available to them. In fact, they weren't on cattle cars, but they were on industrial uh, freight trains um, and sent on a long journey without much food without being able to take many of their uh, possessions. And the tr- the railroad stopped two kilometers from the border. So what happens between the end of the railroad and the border? you got to walk. And it was raining, and it was dark, and it was muddy. And there are dogs, and there are guns. And uh, sadly, there were suicides. And there were shots fired, and some people died in the process. They got to the, the Polish frontier... And the Polish border guards have no clue what's going on. They see a mass flux of humanity approaching them with no, no idea of who these people are or why they're coming. And they sh- they fire shots. So in the chaos, uh, only bad things can happen and lives were lost. Eventually, the uh, Jews were pushed across the border and were settled at a refugee encampment, a makeshift encampment at Zbost Poland. Which had a population of 10,000 people. Well, there were no, more than twice that number of refugees. So they were overwhelmed. It, it took a few days before the Red Cross and other uh, relief agencies were able to bring sufficient food and, and, and water and supplies. So it's in this uh, environment that uh, Herschel's sister, Esther, writes a postcard and sends it to Paris. Herschel gets it on November 3rd. And he's very upset about this, he's very agitated. You, I, you know, war. I'm shocked. I'm amazed. But the postal service in Europe, up until the start of World War II, was outstanding. Even during the Holocaust, Even during the Holocaust it was yeah, a, a tre- tremendous. I don't know how they did it, but they did it. it in yeah. <laughs> so, so he gets this postcard just a few days after it's sent, and he's very, very agitated. On the night Sunday night, November sixth, he gets into a very heated fight with. Uh, Uncle Avram and Aunt Chava. And he slams the door and walks out. It's possible that he had threatened to commit suicide. The issue at hand may have been that um, the family in the the refugee camp was requesting financial assistance from Uncle Avram, and his response was, I've done so much to help you, Herschel, I'm not made out of uh, gold, Uh, money doesn't grow on trees, I can't do any more. the the Greenspan grandmother uh, Herschel's grandmother Zundel's uh, mother had been complaining for years back in Radomsk I'm stuck here in Poland in in, horrible poverty and you my sons are living in Western Europe living it up no the truth is they weren't living it up but they were living in Western Europe under better conditions than in Poland and they weren't sending back a few shekels to their mother and she was bitter about that so Uncle Avram has done what he can do he's not sending any more money Herschel threatens whatever he threatens. Uncle Avram thrusts 200 francs in Herschel's face as he walks out the door. What does Herschel do that night? He takes a a room in the Suez Hotel, a few blocks away. Uh, It's his first night ever in a hotel by himself, and he orders room service, and he's on edge. He doesn't sleep well that night. He has an idea in his head. He goes to a gun shop the next morning, Monday, November 7th, 1938, and buys a 9mm. He tried to buy a much larger caliber weapon, but the store owner told him, you don't know what you're talking about, you don't know what you're doing, you're not going to be able to even hold it. uh, Get a small weapon that holds just a few rounds and it will serve whatever purpose you, you, you need. Herschel supposedly claimed that he needed a weapon for protection because his father is in a cash business. Cash business. Okay, what was his real intention? He wants to make a political statement. He wants to shoot someone. So he walks over to the Rue de Lille, where the German embassy is located. And at the German embassy, he, reach, he reaches uh, the, the gate. There's a French police officer in fr- uh, guarding the, uh, the embassy who uh, asks him, what are you here for? I'm here for uh, uh, visa purposes. The guard tells him, well, the consular offices are that way, but you can walk in this gate if you want to. So he walks in. As he walks in, he brushes up the shoulders with the German ambassador to France, but not realizing it at the time, because he didn't know what the guy looked like. He goes in and has a package, uh, like a manila envelope, that is supposedly filled with papers. He tells the the desk clerk, I I have important documents, and I need to to speak to a a legation secretary, which is someone of of a diplomatic rank. The only person still in the building at that time was the third legation secretary, Ernst von Rath. And Herschel is taken into von Rath's office. Now, why was a 17-year-old boy, a little Jew, uh, taken into the office of a diplomatic official? The answer is, in late 1938, if you walked up to the German embassy in France and claimed that you had important papers, that was basically just coded language for, I'm willing to be a spy. I'm willing to commit, you know, espionage against whomever my country might be in favor of the Germans. And so, whether it's a bluff or it's real, they always let the guy in to, to, say, to say his story. And Herschel, being aware that you could get entry into, uh, into the facility that way, that was his cover. All right, he goes to von Rath's office. Von Rath is facing this way in a swivel chair, turns one-quarter direction and says, So, what's in the papers? and then Herschel pulls out his weapon. And depending upon which version of the story you want to believe, he either uh, used extremely foul language and fired shots, or said, in the name of the 12,000 Jews and the Polish-German border, I hereby assassinate you. Something profound. Um, Like Ethan Allen up uh, at Fort Ticonderoga. Except that the real story was he used foul language. So, Did the shots hit the target? That's the question. He had five rounds in the gun. And he had never fired a weapon in his life. So of the five, three completely missed. Now, I don't know how far away he was, but it wasn't that far. Three out of five completely missed. One hit von Rath in a non-vital organ, a flesh wound. The fifth shot hit him in the spleen. It ricocheted to the stomach. And that was ultimately to prove to be a mortal wound. Well, there may have been a struggle. Depends upon which version of Herschel's account you want to believe. And in the struggle, at least according to one version, Von Rath fought back. Herschel called him a filthy kraut. Von Rath called Herschel a dirty Jew. And eventually Von Rath collapsed. Herschel made no attempt to escape. That wasn't a possibility. People come rushing into the office... They call for help. They call a doctor. French police come in. French ambulance officials, uh, uh, first responders come in. And they're escorting the body to a Paris hospital. In the process, what also happens? Herschel is physically pushed off the embassy grounds back into France. Which was, at least at that point, maybe a good thing. Cause, because now he can be arrested by a, by a French police officer and taken into custody and go to jail the other option was to stay on the embassy grounds and who knows what will happen to him. That's officially Germany. okay? And they wouldn't treat him like Julian Assange is in the Ecuadorian embassy. They would have killed him. So he's, he's now arrested by the French authorities who have to investigate a crime, a murder that was committed in the embassy. But wait a second. Bamrath's not dead yet. He goes to the hospital. His injury is fairly serious. There's a moment on... Uh, on Tuesday, November 8th, when there's thought that maybe he'll survive. But if that was at all possible, which it probably wasn't, Hitler took care of that. He sent his personal physician, Dr. Brandt, to Paris to assist the French physicians in their uh, treatment of von Rath, which absolutely guaranteed that von Rath would die. Because, after all, Hitler wants von Rath dead. Let's let's, Let's find out. Let's find out. So... When Von Rath actually dies around 4 p.m. on Wednesday, November 9th, this is a tremendous opportunity for the Reich. Kind of- November 9th was like the Yom Kippur, Lahavdil, for the Nazis. November 9th, 1923, was the, the opening salvo of Nazism, the Beer Hall Push in Munich, which was an, actually a very ignominious uh, episode. Uh, for the Nazis, they lost. Like 600 of their hooligans tried to take over the, uh, the Bavarian state by occupying a few buildings in Munich, and it was a failure. The the, the German police defeated them, and Her- Hitler went to jail and wrote Mein Kampf while he was in jail. But to them, November 9th was like the, the holiest day in their Heiliger Krieg, their holy war against the Jews. And so there was every year an annual ceremony in Munich where they would offer accommodation, commendations and, uh, and giving merit badges to whoever was rising in the ranks of the Nazi party. So at the ceremony, Goebbels is able to announce that there's going to be a tremendous popular outcry against international Jewry for the conspiracy to kill a German diplomat that it wasn't Herschel, little Herschel Greenspan who killed Ernst von Rath, it was an international Jewish conspiracy that killed Ernst von Rath. An international Jewry will pay the price. So this leads to an order that goes out around 11.55 p.m. to the Gestapo headquarters all over the country, uh, encouraging a pogrom. For the record, it was a popular outburst of anti-Semitic fury, but really it was an orchestrated event, Kristallnacht, which would last all of day of Thursday of November 10th, uh, involved the murder of 91 Jews, the destruction of 277 synagogues, the uh, busting up of over 7,000 Jewish shops, and the incarceration in uh, concentration camps of 30,000 Jewish men. So, this is uh, the first real violent step towards the Holocaust. And it was all precipitated the assassination of Ernst von Rath. (laughs) So, now it's time for Herschel to defend himself. He's in jail, in a French court. court. Well, could he turn to Uncle Avram and Aunt Chava for help? No. Why? They were arrested for harboring an illegal alien. They spent three months in jail. So, Uncle Shlomo and Aunt uh, Aunt Chava's brother... Were the remaining <laughs> f- pater- uh, p- figures, uh, heads of the family, who were left to deal with Herschel's legal plight? Are they in Paris or Paris? They're in Paris. They're in Paris, and they hire some Yiddish-speaking lawyers, who were totally ill-prepared for this challenge. They were not up to uh, up to the task. You needed a top-flight lawyer to defend Herschel in this case. Fortunately for Herschel. Dorothy Thompson came to the rescue. What does Dorothy Thompson have to do with Herschel Greenspan? Dorothy Thompson is an American journalist. The answer is Dorothy Thompson was the leading figure in the mid-20th century for for the underdog, the little guy. Which means what? She supports the Jews in the Holocaust and the Palestinians against the Israelis. Always the underdog, always the underdog. But she established the Journalist Legal Defense Fund to send money to Paris so that Herschel could hire a best, the best lawyer in town. So they did hire the best, absolute best, Vincent de maro who was a Corsican lawyer, the best of the Paris bar, and he had a record of getting all of his clients off uh, in capital cases except one. So that's a pretty good record. And the guillotine was still in play then, in 1939. This is, even though this is not, not, this is not 1789, this is 1939, still the guillotine is the punishment in the capital cases in France. So how is Herschel going to spare his life? After all, it's, it's clear as day that he shot the guy. So, one possibility is to say the truth. This was a politically motivated assassination with moral overtones that Herschel was upset about what the Germans were doing to his family and to the, uh, the plight of, of German and Polish Jews stuck in the, in the refugee camp. Uh, this was a, a, a justified attack on a German target to raise public awareness about uh, uh, the inhumanity of Nazism. It's a fair defense, right? So it might have worked. But not in 1938-39. Because the attitudes of the public had changed. In 1926, that very defense worked for a Jew in Paris. Shalom uh, Schwartzbard, who you may have heard that name, he was a, fa- a somewhat famous Yiddish writer. Uh, I'm not sure. But he, he, he was a quasi-famous a famous Yiddish writer. And in 1926, on the streets of Paris, he saw Simon Petliura, who was a Ukrainian nationalist, who was guilty, or at least was complicit in, the killing of close to 200,000 Jews during the Russian Civil War, when the Reds fought the Whites, and the Ukrainians took out their vengeance against Jews. It was Other than the Holocaust, this was the worst uh, example of anti-Jewish atrocities in the 20th century. And w- if not for the Holocaust, would, which overshadowed it, it would have been more famously known to us today. But many, many Jews were killed. And this Ukrainian nationalist was living in exile after the Soviets d- defeated the, uh, the whites. He was living in Paris. Schwarzbard sees him, shoots him dead in the street. And what did he do? In court, he said, I was defending Am Yisrael against this vicious Amalek. And and a Parisian court let him off. How do you like that? A Jew got off for killing a a, a, a horrible anti-Semite in 1926 in a Paris court. uh, Very different from, let's say, the Dreyfus era 25 years earlier. Another example, in 1936 in Davos, another Jew, David Frankfurter, assassinated Wilhelm Gustloff who was the leader of the, the Swiss branch of Nazis Abroad. And a Swiss court convicted him and sentenced him to life in jail. After, after the war in 1945, he was uh, pardoned, and then he spent the rest of his life in Israel and ended up serving a very uh, decorated role in the, on the IDF. So this was the third time in the interwar period that a Jew was assassinating a, a famous anti-Semite. Yeah. You mentioned Dreyfus. Wasn't there, or was there, any lingering anti Semitism? There's always anti Semitism. Uh, uh, yeah. Arising specifically from the Dreyfus affair? There's always anti Semitism in France. It never fully goes away. But it's an, it it's, uh, has peaks and valleys, up and down. And in 1939, it's uh, well, there, there is anti Jewish sentiment because Leon Blum was not very well liked. Uh, his tenure as, as French Prime Minister was not a very successful one, and that exacerbated anti-Jewish sentiment. Uh, but the point is that 1938-39 is not 1926. In 1926, this, there are still residual feelings about World War I, about victory, about defeating the Germans, defeating the bad guys. By 1938-39, the, the sentiment is, you don't fight against the Germans, you appease them. That's what everyone's doing. Sure. And so, for Ernst von Rath to be shot dead in cold blood by a little Jew, shameful. You don't do such things. If we have a problem with the Nazis, we try to work it out diplomatically, if, if at all possible, but not through violent means. So, Herschel's lawyers realized immediately you can't take the political defense. It's not going to work, it's going to get him killed. So, his lawyer, Geoffrey, suggests another type of defense. Say, no that Herschel and Von Rath were gay lovers. Okay? Now, uh, what exactly might the circumstances have been? Was it an actual relationship? Was it a uh, solicitation of prostitution gone bad? Whatever it might have been, it involved a homosexual relationship. Now, why would that, why would that defense work very well? Number one, because the French... We're always, uh, more, uh, we're always softer on crimes of passion. Crimes of passion in France, they take a very soft, uh, kind-hearted approach. Moreover, it defeats the Nazi agenda in this trial, because Nazis viewed homosexuality as a grave sin, and so to portray their guy in a negative light, in a deviant light, well the Nazis wouldn't want to be uh, complicit in this sort of trial. And they would recuse themselves and would just be the French who maybe don't have much of an interest in, in executing a little Jewish boy over the, the, the death of a German uh, diplomat. Herschel refuses. Absolutely not. He says, I will not do such a defense. Now, why not? Number one, it wasn't true. Or at least we assume it wasn't true. And number two, Herschel has his own agenda. He doesn't want to go down as a disgraced fagula. in his own words. Those were his words. He wants, he wants to be seen as, a, as someone who, who did a heroic act for his people to call attention to their, to their horrible plight. And that's what, that's what he wants. That's what he's going to get. Alright. French law had an interesting quirk. French law allowed victims of a crime to participate in the prosecution, to help to assist the prosecution. In case of murder, where the victim is no longer alive, their family members have the right to assist in the prosecution, which means they have their own legal representation and are involved in the proceedings. Ernst von Rath's father, uh, Gustav von Rath, had no interest in doing this. Gustav von Rath was not a Nazi. He was a career diplomat. His son Ernst von Rath was a tepid Nazi at best, which explains possibly why Hitler and the regime wanted him dead, that he wasn't really a loyal son of, uh, of the party. Technically speaking, he was an alter kempfer. He was an old fighter because he joined the party before January 30th, 1933, and thus was accorded a degree of respect and had a state funeral. But, he joined the party not in the, in the 1920s, in the early 20s, when the, all the old uh, hardcore Nazis joined. He joined in the summer of 1932, which was pretty late in the game, when it was clear that the Nazis were on the ascendancy. So he, it may have been a, something of a tepid Nazi, and his father certainly didn't want to be part of this uh, show trial. But in Nazi Germany, you don't have much of a choice. If Hitler wants something, you do it. How, how old was von Rath? 29, he was, when he was assassinated. So the father, under orders, travels to Paris in January of 1939 and signs the requisite paperwork so that he, but really the German state, could participate in the prosecution. And the and, uh, Goebbels sends two lawyers to, uh, to assist the, in, the, in the trial. At von Rath's funeral, Hitler was there. He sat in the front row, but he didn't give the, the eulogy and he never said two words to the von Rath parents. He shook their hand, and that was the extent of his condolence. Clearly, there was a disconnect between the, the Nazi hierarchy and the von Rath family. This is all being used for propaganda purposes. None of it is, is sincere, and the family really didn't want to get involved. Now, was there any... Uh, tr- forget it, was there any truth to the, to the gay angle? But was there any circumstantial evidence that might... Um, lead people to believe the homosexual angle? And the answer is yes. Ernst von Rath entered the Foreign Service after uh, dropping out of law school in the early 1930s. And he served as an, in an internship position at the embassy in Paris. But then his first real position was in Calcutta. And while in Calcutta, he developed some mysterious disease which required him to go back to Germany for radiation treatment. And it is suggested that he had some sort of venereal disease that he got from being promiscuous uh, in the homosexual environment in Calcutta. That's the the suggestion. It could be totally false. But then again, when you're trying to get people to believe something, any bit of circumstantial evidence helps. Okay. So, the trial is potentially going to happen in France, in 1939. But it doesn't happen. Delay, delay, delay. Who's interested in having a trial? The Germans are interested in the trial. Because they want to show that it's the fault of the Jews that relations between France and Germany are fraying to the point of potential war. Also, even after the official outbreak of the war, the Germans are interested in having the trial go forward, although they, they can no longer participate because of the state of war because they want to show that why did war break out? Why is there armed conflict in Europe? Because of the Jews. Even as late as 1941, when Herschel is under different circumstances and no longer under French control but under German control, the Nazis will want to have a trial to justify what? The final solution. That whatever uh, torment happens to the Jews is because they deserved it. Because they were mortal foes of the German Reich. Okay, The French are not really interested in taking this to trial. It's a headache for them. It's a no-win situation for the French. But in the meantime, Herschel languishes is in prison. And, you know, that's not a, f- a fun experience for him. And he's racking up legal bills. Okay. Now, September 1st, 1939, what happens? So, if you tell me that Poland is invaded, you're right. If you tell me World War II begins, you're wrong. Because the invasion of Poland doesn't really start World War II in earnest. Yes, France and, German, uh, France and England declare war on Germany on September 3rd in reaction to, to the invasion and fulfillment of their treaty obligations with Poland. But it's a phony war. It's a phony war until the Germans decide to invade the Benelux countries in April of 1940. May, May uh, well, and then May 10th was France. Uh, was France. And then June 14th is Paris, the conquest of Paris. So, when did they start bombing? <coughs> what was that? When did they start bombing? think in the summer, uh, I think in July, maybe June. July, July, yeah. Um, So, during the phony war, nothing is going to happen for Herschel. The French don't want to prosecute someone for killing a German, but they also can't just release him. When Paris is conquered, well now what happens? The Nazis are in control. What happens to Herschel? So Herschel is one of several VIP prisoners who the Nazis are desperate to get their hands on him. Desperate. The French Ministry of Justice is collapsing southward along with the rest of the French government, and which eventually will become the Vichy regime in unoccupied France. And all the prisoners are on buses going south in the exodus, the mass exodus south. Well, at one point, Herschel's bus is bombed. And what happens when a bus carrying prisoners is bombed and they, they, their handcuffs are off? What do they do? They run in a thousand directions. Except if you're Herschel Greenspan. And you don't really speak French all that well. You're a Jew. You're a little kid. You have no family anywhere. You have no food. You don't know what to do, and the Germans are after you. What's your best bet? Keep going south and go to a French jail. So he, several stops along the way till he finally gets to Toulouse in southern France where he's desperately asking his jailers, keep incarcerating me, don't let me go. I have nowhere, no other options, no other good options. Now, one of his jailers did him a big favor. He deleted Herschel's name from the manifest of one of the transports so that the, the, the record of, of Herschel hits a dead end. And from the Nazi point of view, they can't find him. But... He did that to confound. Well, it, it was actually done just to, to, to save that jailer's own uh, skin for, because he didn't want to be known as someone who had any contact with a VIP. He'd rather it not be known that I ever, I ever met you, you know. So he deletes the name. How do you delete a name? I mean, this is, you know, I can't delete it. Uh, they cross it off. The, no, they're, they're rewriting manifests every time there's a transfer. You just don't write the guy's name. But whatever uh, complicated story it was... By July of 1940, the Nazis become aware of Herschel's existence, that he's in southern France, and they ask for his extradition. And the extradition treaty between Vichy France and, and, the, and the Germans allowed for and d- insisted upon uh, the handing over of any German subjects who are requested. So Herschel's going to be handed over. But wait a second! He's not a German citizen. He never was. He was a Polish citizen. Moreover, he was a minor when he committed the offense, and he's only eighteen then. So, all these are good legal points. Yeah, but, but who cares? This is 1940, and we're dealing with the Germans. Germans so, you, what are you going to sue on an appeals court? So, Herschel is handed over to the, to the Gestapo at the, the border of, of Vichy and, and occupied France, and is quickly taken on a plane to Berlin. But how did they know he was there? They found out. They found out. Uh, Somehow they found out. uh, Someone spilled the beans. He's taken to to Germany. Now, in Germany, he's a VIP. He's one of the handful of of, uh, Jews in the history of the Holocaust to have special treatment in the positive sense of the word, not the negative sense of the word. In other words, he actually was uh, unmolested and fed a, a healthy diet to be kept in good condition. Uh, I mean, it reminds me of uh, who else of, of, of the Jewish population of Europe was also treated well by the Nazis. Rudolf Kastner, among others, who could walk around like he owned the place. Well, Herschel was in jail. He was in a Gestapo jail. But he was treated very well. Simple reason. He needs to be in, in exemplary physical condition for the subsequent show trial, which is to happen at the, uh, at the time and in place of Hitler's choosing. So, they're getting ready for the show trial. The Nazis investigate every angle of the story. They investigate the Greenspan family in Poland, the Greenspan family in Germany, the Greenspan family in France. 28 different people who were, had criminal convictions whose last name was Greenspan who had nothing to, no relationship to Herschel. Every possible angle of the story was investigated because they didn't want to have a piece of information released during the trial that would spoil the whole charade. No surprises. surprises. Well, the trial keeps getting delayed. And meantime, Herschel is languishing in prison, this time in a German prison. The last known communication between him and his family was in April of 1940 when he was still under French custody. And some people thought that he was killed shortly after getting into German hands. But the German records unsealed after the war tell us very clearly that there were discussions about the show trial in 1941, and that it was, <coughs> the trial was supposed to take place in May of 41. but it was, it was postponed. And then it was postponed again. And there are repeated attempts to start the trial. The last known documentary piece of evidence that says that Herschel was probably still alive was in November of 1942 when a Nazi official says trial date yet to be determined. Now, it doesn't say Herschel was alive, but Mistama, if it says the trial date is yet to be determined, that he's still alive. Okay, and that's... Why all these postponements? Okay, so one one of the major reasons why there was postponements is because Herschel finally opened up and told other versions of the story, including that he and von Rath were gay lovers. And Article 175 in the German Code has homosexuality being a very grievous offense. So, they don't, they don't like this. They don't want Herschel to open up about the, uh, the deviant behavior of one of their diplomats while on the stand. And so, for that, primarily for that reason, and for other reasons, the trial was postponed. The trial also became a, non, a non-issue. Hitler had other, other items on his agenda. And once the final solution begins, does it really matter that you put one Jew on trial for killing one diplomat when you exe- when you 're exterminating by the, th- by the tens of thousands on a daily basis to the Jews of Eastern Europe? It becomes like a, a an insignificant thing in, the, in in the larger picture but but precisely because no one uh, beneath Hitler in the, in the Nazi hierarchy had the right to either call for his execution or for the implementation of the trial, likely he was still alive. He could have been killed at any moment, but who's going to shoot him? Everyone is afraid if they take the initiative that they've done something that the Fuhrer doesn't agree with. And so Herschel's life was elongated, sort of artificially, by the fact that no one was willing to pull the trigger. Which leads to the question, what happened to Herschel? If he were alive today, he'd be 96. But when did he die? When did Herschel die? So, one, after the war, there's no sighting of him. No one knows where he is. No one knows where he is. In 1960, the family survived. Okay, they, they went to Poland, and then they fled into the Soviet Union and survived the war under the Russians and then ma- immigrated to Israel. The sister died in Auschwitz, but the parents and the brother made it to Israel. In 1960, they want reparations for Herschel. So they sue the West German government, but they don't have a death certificate. So they don't have a body. There's, the, the, there's, the, there's this complete absence of evidence. So uh, so uh, well, the German court in Hanover did in Herschel's case what they did in thousands of other cases they decreed that his date of death was May 8th, 1945, the last day of the war. Now, although that's a legal fiction, in Herschel's case, there's there's an element of truth to it. In other words, if he didn't survive the war, he either was shot or died of natural causes, uh, unpleasant natural causes, towards the end of the war, since he was kept alive in the hopes of a show trial so that he didn't make it out of the war alive means he died somewhere towards the end of the war. How, when, where, exactly... We can't know for sure, there are various theories, but May May 8th, 1945 is his legal date of death. Legal fiction. Alright? That's what the court said. But, other people, including German journalists, claimed that he lived, he survived the war. And why doesn't anyone know where he is? Because he's ashamed, either from the gay angle, or that he wasn't recognized as the hero he thought he would be, and the shame of not having been recognized as such led him to lead a quiet life under an assumed name. Alright? People do that. I mean... Herschel probably didn't do that because he was probably dead, but, but it, that does happen to people, that after a chaotic world circumstance where you know, their participation was kind of uh, rejected and, and, and seen as unheroic... He, he was also an excuse for Kristallnacht. He was an excuse for Kristallnacht, so therefore the Jews might have had a problem with him, which we'll see in a second. So the theory is he was still alive. In 1952, an article was printed in a German magazine which claimed that, that, that he was a von Rath's gay lover and that's why he stayed quiet, but that he's still very much alive. Uh, Gunther von Rath, Ernst's brother, was very offended by that and sued the writer of the article. And it went to litigation and took a long time before it finally got to a courtroom in 1959. And what happened... The author of the article, without really any evidence, said, Yeah, yeah, Herschel is still alive. Not only is he alive, he was in the courtroom yesterday and you didn't even notice it. Wow. wow. So, what does the judge respond? Not, you're a blithering fool, cut it out with the nonsense. No, the judge said, If he comes again, we're going to arrest him. <laughs> for, either for murder of von Rath or Article 175 of violating the, the sexual deviancy statutes. Now, now so, the judge looked like a fool, because he played into what was a myth. But yet, serious people believed this myth. Raoul Hilberg, one of the leading Holocaust historians of the first generation of Holocaust historians, thought that Herschel was, was alive after the war, and wrote it sort of parenthetically in one of his books. Hannah Arendt also wrote that Herschel survived the war. Now, from her, Macha uh, Sheffer, she deserves whatever was coming to her. But, 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 serious people, serious people, thought that Herschel survived the war. Now he he probably didn't. What what actually happened to him? So there are a few theories. One is that he died at Sachsenhausen concentration camp, either of natural causes or a shot to the head. Another is that he died at Magdenburg concentration camp. Another is that uh, his name was Otto Schneider, at least on the, on the prisoner rolls. Why Otto Schneider? Because the family were a bunch of tailors, so that's the Schneider part, and the Otto is just a convenient cover name, and the birth date for Otto Schneider was March 28, 1921, the same day as Herschel, and that he died in early 1945 um, as the, the concentration camps were being liquidated. So, various theories we can't know for sure, other than to say no one ever saw him alive after the war. Right. What, what is the legacy of Herschel? In the last ten minutes we have to discuss what was his legacy. So, if we take the story at face value without any conspiracies, he simply was troubled by what was happening to his family, He felt the only thing that he could do of any serious nature was to make a political statement by shooting someone. So he bought a gun and did it. And he paid the price. He got arrested and never came out of captivity. Is that a heroic thing? So from the Jewish perspective, in 1938, all the Jews rejected his action all the officialdom of Jewry, American Jewry, German Jewry, they all rejected his behavior as being irresponsible and uh, more damaging than anything else. But then again, in 1938, in the moment, you can't blame them for thinking that, because if they say anything else, especially if they're on the European continent, that's going to risk them further doom. The American Jews are a little bit to blame, though, because... They should have seen the, the, the heroic nature of what Herschel did. Instead, they just uh, lambasted him. And by the way, that explains why his legal defense fund was established by a Gentile and why his lawyer was a Gentile. The whole goal was to dissociate his action, his violence, from the Jewish people and say he's one crazy kid with, a, with, with, with uh, mental problems and not that he's a representative of Am Yisrael. And so, keep Jews away from his trial, have Gentile lawyers, Gentile sponsors. He, he's not one of us. Not one of us. That was the Jewish approach. That was the Jewish pro- approach in thirty-eight, and it continued to be the Jewish approach even after the war, which explains why you never heard of him. Because if the Jews had adopted a different attitude towards Herschel and said that what he did was, was somehow brave and valiant, then he'd be up there in the Pantheon with uh, Chana Senesh and Mordechai Analevitz and all the others. But he isn't. If you go to Yad Vashem, you know what they say about Herschel? Nothing. In the in in roster of, of, of pictures that flash over the screen before you walk into the museum for about a second and a half, there's a picture of Herschel. This picture. This picture right here. When he was take, when, taken when he was 17. But his name doesn't appear. And even in the section on Kristallnacht, there's <laughs> reference to the assassination of Ernst von Rath, but not who did it. So, Herschel has been erased. It's like a Yamak Shamo situation. Totally unfairly, in my opinion. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Now, no. What, what did he do that was so heroic, aside from the fact that he shot someone? The other thing is, he canceled any possibility. He thwarted the possibility of a show trial. And how did he do it? Like, By myself. embarrassing himself. Here, Herschel's great act was that he, he committed a, a, you know, an act of violence to, to shoot a German. And that was going to be his big glory, the big gadilla. And it was, it was undermined by the circumstances. And yet the Nazis are going to have this big win of a show trial to condemn Jewry. And how does he take away the Nazi victory? By saying that he's a homosexual. There's nothing more embarrassing than that in the 1940s environment. So he, he, he forfeited, he knowingly forfeited his glory for the sake of taking away a Nazi victory. Now, yes, he didn't save anybody's life, but then again, neither did the Warsaw Ghetto Fighters. All right? in, in dealing with, with uh, resistance to Nazism, sometimes resistance takes on odd forms, cultural forms, religious-spiritual forms, not always the saving of lives by, by, by means of a gun. And so Herschel's act of saying, I was von Rath's lover, is in many ways heroic. He cheated the Nazis out of their victory. That's what I, I think is how the story should be interpreted. Except that most of the writers who, who handled the Greenspan case didn't see it that way until uh, Jonathan Kirsch two years ago wrote this book and disagreed with some of his predecessors and said Herschel was a, you know, a worthy figure in the deserving to be in the pantheon of, of, of Am Yisrael. Now, the other reason why Herschel got a bum rap is because his victim was not, Uh, Simon Platura. He wasn't a Ukrainian uh, uh, anti-Semite with with blood on his hands. And he wasn't... um, He wasn't an arch menace of Am Yisrael. He wasn't an Amalekite. He was just a German who happened to hold a a, a low-level diplomatic post in France. And it's before the war. It's not 1942. It's 1938. It's not a guy with an SS badge and a gun. It's a guy with a diplomatic passport. So the nature of the victim and the timing of the shooting do not bode well for making Herschel into a hero. But, as he, but nonetheless, we know the end of the story. In 1938, they didn't know the end of the story, so they see Herschel as just a, a, a lunatic who caused trouble. But in hindsight, he was a lot more than that. Now, did Herschel cause Kristallnacht? That's the last question for tonight. And the answer is very plainly no. It's very clear from the evidence that has come out after the war, that the, the Germans were, uh, were plotting and were planning a mass pogrom against the Jews of, of Germany and Austria to take place late in 1938 uh, and to escalate the, the nature of anti-Jewish persecution. They had readied the concentration camps um, and the, the Gestapo and the SS had their, their plans well in advance. They were looking for a pretext. And they found it in Herschel's action. But had Herschel not done what he had done, they could have fabricated one. Like, number one, the Reichstag fire of February 27, 1933. And number two, maybe even more importantly, on August thirty-first, 1939, the Poles invaded Germany. Did you know that? (laughs) You didn't know that because it never happened. They staged it. What did, what, did the, what did the Germans do? They took uh, dead concentration camp prisoners, dressed them up in German soldiers' uh, uniforms, and ha- lied them down on a, on a radio station by the German-Polish border, had other soldiers dress up in Polish uniforms and cross in a westerly direction over the frontier, shoot some, some, some uh, ammo at the, at the radio station, and claim that the Poles invaded Germany. So they could, they could create a fictitious a false flag uh, op whenever they would have wanted to. They didn't need Herschel. So in 1938, they still needed a little fiction. By 1942, 43, 44, they don't need any fiction. They can just kill for the sake of killing. But in thirty-eight, they still need abyssal fiction. And they got it. Uh, now, the question then is, and this was a theory that was thrown around, maybe Herschel was in on the false flag operation. Maybe Herschel was a Nazi operative. Really? Now, I don't believe that for a second. I don't believe that for a second. But... From the, the moment that the, the incident happened, up until uh, the outbreak of the war, and even after the outbreak of the war, there were people in the West who speculated that maybe that was the truth. Remember I said Herschel had 3,000 francs, but we don't know how he got it? So the theory goes that the Germans co-opted Herschel as, as their stooge and gave the family a nice chunk of money in order for him to take out take out von Reth as a pretext for the massive program that we know as Kristallnacht, I don't believe this theory, but I mentioned it to you simply because there were many who did believe it. It was part of the delay in the trial. The trial kept getting delayed because various conspiracy ther- theories were thrown around, and no one wanted to be caught off guard with some motive, some potential motive that they hadn't thought of previously. And that also results in the, 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 the mystique, the myth, the, the legend of Herschel Greenspan. Precisely, all these theories were never totally debunked. They're thrown around with limited evidence or no evidence, but just like there's no evidence to prove them, there's no evidence to disprove them. And we're left with this mystery of a 17-year-old boy who disappears from the face of the earth a few years later, and is a hero to some and a villain to others. We'll stop here.